This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. When I was in high school, we were headed to the state championship in volleyball. And our coach had a great idea to have the football coach kind of come and pump us up. And he was a famous high school football coach, Graham Hickson, honey. And we were so excited to hear from him. And I'll never forget, he walks in, he looks at all of us, and he says, y'all are not the Woodward Academy women's volleyball team. You are the Woodward Academy volleyball team. He said, you don't have last names on your jersey for a reason. We are one team, Woodward Academy. And the football team and the swim team and the golf team, everybody's behind you. That is how I feel today about the people that, again, have stopped everything going on in their world to come meet with us to talk about the Long Island serial killer. And I appreciate every one of them. And I'm gonna get right to Sergeant Joseph Jagaloni. He worked cold cases with NYPD. He worked at the homicide school. He received the Medal of Valor. And when I tell y'all he wrote the book, literally, he wrote the book on cold cases. And then he followed up with the second book on criminal investigation. So he has the cold case handbook and the criminal investigation function. So Sergeant, I'm gonna go right to you. What do you think is next for this investigation, the next steps? I think we have to find out who our other identified victims are, right? So we have Peaches and we have uh, Asian male. And along with Peaches, as we know, is her daughter, Jane uh, Baby Doe, that they refer to her as. And it's important that we identify these individuals because if law enforcement wants to solve the case, you have to start off with who your victim is so that you can go back and try to piece together what was going on in that person's life, who they were hanging out with, what they were doing. And of course, maybe somebody remembers something back then, because when you put a face to a name, then all of a sudden, a lot of things come back to the surface. Do you see this task force being 
even larger than we think that it is? Yes, I, I think the task force grows because as this investigation starts barreling forwards. So we have at least on the table, I think you have the fourth victim, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, will be added to the docket. And then you have to look at the other six or seven individuals out there that were found along Gilgo, Matterville, and Hempstead Lake State Park. I name all those locations because, unfortunately, pieces of them, of these victims, were found in all of those locations. So they're all tied into Gilgo some one way or another. And I think Peaches is up next uh, in regards to it. I, and I believe, I think most of the people on this panel believe that they already know who she is because they kind of, I think the Mobile, Mobile Police Department kind of might have made a mistake by putting out saying, hey, the FBI is looking for help to try to identify this family member. And here's a tattoo. And yeah. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think that was a, I think that might have been an oops moment, but that was back in October. So I think by now they've identified uh, peaches, which is important. It is important. And I think they've identified her and the Asian male. And I think we'll be hearing very soon about both of those victims. Lisa Rabakov, polygraph expert, private investigator, with a case of this magnitude, how do you think private investigators could possibly help this task force? And I'm thinking specifically interviews with sex workers possibly, internet searches, government records. What do you think? Well, you just named three out of uh, a couple of things that are on my list here. So uh, you're definitely ahead of the ball. I think that the resources that the task force has now are excellent, and especially considering the communication and efforts that are being done jurisdictionally across the board and the open lines of communication. But I do think that if there are individuals that are licensed professionals that do have a skill set that the task force could be reaching out to them or these individuals could be reaching out to the task force to donate their time and services. Because I do feel that interviewing the um, sex workers in the region area, possibly even re-interviewing the ones that have already been interviewed, just for a second set of eyes is beneficial. As for searches, as a licensed private investigator in any jurisdiction, we are limited to what we are able to get our fingertips on and what we are allowed to have access to within our license. There could possibly be the idea of, again, the open lines of communication with PIs to provide their resources and time to law enforcement to possibly save um, resources and allocate it towards other aspects of the investigation. I know for myself, I've done a little bit of digging all through public record researches on the basis of properties in South Carolina, research here in New York pertaining to the properties here. But again, there's information that is accessible to the public, and I think the public does need to be aware that just because we have licenses to conduct certain investigations and to uh, conduct searches, that there has to be permissible purposes. And that's the fine line between being a licensed investigator and or working on a task force through a law enforcement agency versus being a member of the general public just wanting to look around. Excellent. And I like the point about volunteer their time and talent. Sometimes that could be the difference in, you know, getting a chance to look at something and not because sometimes your budget doesn't cover what you're needing to do on the case in the first place, much less bring other people in. Mike Morf Morford, y'all know him as the host of Criminology Podcast. How are you, Mac? I am great, but I'm like everybody else. My mind just keeps <laughs> clicking with this Long Island serial killer thing because it's, it's like information comes every day for us, but 
when I think about you, what comes to my mind is I want to know if you're seeing from your listeners, as far as the things that they're interested in on this case, what are you noticing? Well, I think everybody is is sort of looking for the next leg to sprout because this case just seems to sprout more legs. There's more locations. There's possible victims. A lot of people want to know if there's any way that he's connected to those Atlantic City victims. I think we all probably agree that there very well may be more victims of his out there. He's got these gaps in time, and sometimes killers do stop for a time, but Sometimes they don't, and, and there are some stretches of time where it's not known exactly who is doing, and until those blanks get filled in, I, I, that's the thing I'm seeing is people just want to see how many more people, how many lives has he taken, and, and where are they, and where what's going to be the next headline to pop up in this case? I think you're right. The next headline is coming, and I think there's going to be one after the other after the other to try to understand and dissect. Now, Dr. Joni Johnston. Forensic psychologist, private investigator, author of Serial Killers 101, Questions True Crime Fans Ask. You have said from day one that there's no way if the Long Island serial killer is Rex that he started killing in his 40s. We know now from the Fire Island Jane Doe being identified that she went missing in 1996. So that would put him right in that 30-something, early 30 age bracket. That gives us 15 years before the Gilgo Four. Just tell us what those numbers mean to you. Well, those numbers are pretty frightening to me when I think about the possibility of the number of victims that could be out there. And you're absolutely right. Um, it is... I think the average age that a serial killer starts killing is around 28. And I think in, in uh, 1996, he would have been around 27, 28 years old. So that really does line up um, with the average. And then you think about, as you pointed out, you think about the fact that, you know, you fast forward 13 years, 15 years, and you think, you know, the younger he is, I think the more likely there are to be victims. And so, you know, I, is it believable that he didn't kill a lot of victims after, you know, the ones that were found in 2010? Yes. 2013? Yes. But before that, I mean, I would have imagined he would have been more active the younger he was. And given that we know that he's been tied to several states now, I, you know, my imagining just, imagination just kind of goes wild thinking about all the possibilities here. Do you think that they're tied to locations where he lived had some type of connection to, or do you just think he picked this spot and then just kept it because he was comfortable there? You know, when you look at the research on serial killers, definitely most of them pick places where they are comfortable. Um, you know, that can be somebody somewhere close to work. It could be their home. It can be somewhere close to where they live. But very few serial killers go around different places that they're not familiar with. Even if they're going to a place where they don't live, they typically do a lot of reconnaissance beforehand because they want, they don't, they don't, they don't want there to be a lot of surprises. They want to feel in control of the environment. Carrie Rawson, advocate, serial killer expert, author. It does seem like you know, things are changing every day and more information is coming out and victims are being identified by name. How do we continue to advocate for victims and keep that mindset of being respectful toward victims' families and suspect families literally when stuff is changing every day? 
that's a really good question and something I'm trying to navigate because I, I, I'm in like several lanes here of trying to advocate for like on the criminal side for a family that's innocent victims like um, Asa and her kids, you know, so I'm trying to speak up for them, but I'm not wanting to cause harm um, to the the victims' families that have lost somebody that, you know, have a murder victim. I know it's very difficult for them. You know, they're seeing these go this GoFundMe, like Ace's family needs help, but their families need help too, right? And then it's got to be brutal for these families. Like some of them are even on Twitter that have lost like their sisters or cousins. And, you know, like they're constantly in a timeline seeing Rex's face. And then like, it's hard for me because if I'm, if I'm asked on record by a media outlet to speak, you know, I, I might be giving a victim advocacy component, but then I, I don't have any control, as you all know, over whatever else is in that article or the photo, right? Like, I, I don't even have control over that headline. So for me, my reality is you're always going to see BTK's daughter. Like, I don't have any control of putting my victim advocacy work next to Rex's photo. You know, you'll you'll listen to um, the seven victim families of my father's, and some of them are more vocal than others. But like, they'll talk about like how all this focuses on my dad. And, and sometimes they'll say, hey, like you're focusing on him. Man, man, I got like 10 lanes I'm over here trying to walk really, really carefully. Because also the reality is I have things I can add about the investigation and, you know, about about these critters, as I'm calling them. But like, I want to be sensitive to everybody. And shoot, I don't know, Mac. <laughs> well, you know, that was well stated. I mean, that's the reality of your world. You're saying you're in all these different lanes, but those lanes shift on you. <laughs> and so, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, ma'am. They, they, and and as as you were saying, and everybody can attest to in in this zone seven, um, those lanes are moving very quickly, very rapidly, and we're all being pulled in to varying degrees to be news. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, 
Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You know, I'm thinking about all the folks that responded to the different scenes and then especially the processing of the home. And you're talking about being ground zero for two weeks. And, you know, there's some folks that already have some PTSD happening. You know, some people at that scene looked very, very young to me. Sergeant, talk a little bit about what does happen to you. Because uh, I know Dr. Uh, Joni and I were talking a minute ago. There's an old saying that we all use. You can't unring a bell and you can't unsee something. Well, yeah, especially coming from many of us who spent lots of time down at Ground Zero, too, and did all that. And, and you know, in, in New York City, cops, unfortunately, especially, I mean, I got on the police department in 1992. And by 1994, we had hit the, you know, we were up, uh, I think that, that might have been like the high watermark. I think 1990 was the, the highest for all of the crime, but for murders. So we saw a lot of stuff, especially early on in our careers. And as things went along, you kind of get... I guess you build up a resistance to it and, you know, you, you deal with your own, you know, your own self-defense mechanisms and that. that's why sometimes you, if you watch that, that crime scene or the, the search warrant, you see some of the cops, uh, you know, just laughing or that kind of thing. So yeah, it's a defense mechanism. A lot of people get upset about that when they see cops laughing at crime scenes. But I try to explain to people that it, you, know, it, you have to do something. It's, it's just to break up the reality of it. I know, uh, you know, Dr. Joni there would would, would definitely have a, a more of an insight on this, but just from normal everyday cops, yeah, these things can take their toll on them. And and, we, and you know, Mac, a lot of people, a lot of cops, they have they have a lot of problems dealing with it. I mean, there's high alcoholism, there's you know, high divorce rates, there's all kinds of things that go along with policing, but it has to do with the job itself. Absolutely, and that humor, it is something not everybody understands. But sometimes you've got one or two choices, either bust out crying or bust out laughing. And a lot of people would rather laugh and, you know, feel that camaraderie and that sort of thing at a scene. But I know for me, sometimes when you've got something that just is really extra twisted and evil, there's only a handful of people you can really talk to about it. That falls into the whole police culture and the blue cocoon, however you want to refer to it as. I just had another guy I, I spent a lot of time working with, and unfortunately, he took his life only a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I know I've known a, I've known a number of cops that have you know killed themselves, and you know people say, well, they had family problems or they had financial problems. Yeah, I understand that, but that's like the uh, the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. So, you know, it, it's important that police departments focus on the mental health aspect of things, but it's a really fine line they have to walk because if they really research this and really get involved into it, you're going to have a lot of cops that are going to get surveyed off the job. And right now, police departments can't afford to have that. 
So it's it's like the dirty little secret when you're dealing with policing in, in that aspect. It's like uh, it's ignorance and apathy. Who knows and who cares? And it's it's the bottom line. They figured out if that something happens, we'll deal with it then. Until then, we're going to keep on you know pushing ahead. Well, like Graham Hickson said, Coach Hickson, you know, we're one school, we're one team. And I always feel like we're all one department. And we need to make sure all those folks that are working this case know that they have our support and our respect and our help if they need it. And that's another reason when you have a platform like Morph has that, you know, you can talk about things and, you know, have guests on your show that even if one of your listeners is maybe not aware of some help or maybe if they just hear a story and go, hey, the same thing is happening to me. Sometimes more if you may not even know the good you're doing for somebody by telling some of these stories. Yeah, and that's especially true on my podcast, The Murder of My Family, because I talk specifically with, you know, survivors uh, who've lost a family member to, to murder. And sometimes they come on because they want to, you know, it feels healing to talk about it. Sometimes because their case is unsolved and they're asking for help getting tips and leads generated, and sometimes because they want to help other people. A lot of them will tell me there's no manual on how to deal with this, but I've learned X, Y, and Z, and if I can help somebody else that's going through this, then you know I'm, I'm happy to come on and share my story, and I hear that quite often. Now, Lisa, let's talk a little bit about the timeline. The timeline to me is the money tree when you first start any homicide, but especially one of this vast parallel investigations and single investigations that are all going to somehow be woven together. But for me on a timeline, when you start identifying some of these victims from the Long Island serial killer, that's going to give us the date that they actually disappeared. And that's going to fill in some blanks. How important is that intel? I think once we start figuring out the timeline and we know specifically when we can go ahead and have the identification of these victims, we can then go back and hit boots on the ground and start the interviews, start putting feelers out there, like Joe mentioned, putting a face to a name and going ahead and being able to acquire those details to which then searches and investigations can get done. So that way, I mean, even something as simple as doing a DMV search to go ahead and check a driver's license for last reported address going ahead and checking social security records, checking voter registrations, checking even their own criminal history so that way we can develop a profile on the individual. And there's two sides to that line for me when I do a timeline. It also is going to lock him in if he's trying to come up with some alibis. Once we know dates, he may or may not have alibis for some of these dates where the person originally went missing. Correct. I mean, there you could ask me, where was I six weeks ago at this specific date and time? And I'll tell you, I have no clue. I'm not going to know. I don't even remember what I did yesterday or what I ever even had for breakfast this morning. So it's going to take definitely a long shot from him to be able to go ahead and figure out where he was and what he was doing. And again, it possibly could come back to cell phone triangulations and geofencing and see where his phone was hitting to jog his memory. But again, it comes down to recognition and recall and memory and whether or not also, I mean, how much does he recall? I mean, we don't know how many victims are actually associated with him. We don't know his his specific level of um, psychology or even memory recall because 
how much information has he retained for each victim? We don't know if he kept a log or a journal pertaining to the dates and circumstances and facts of whatever alleged murders he did commit. Because there we know that there are some individuals that do commit crimes that do commit a journal, uh, keep a journal, keep a log of what they have. We also don't know, depending upon what gets, uh, I guess, produced with regards to discovery on the basis of the search warrant in South Carolina, because we know that the vehicle was ascertained. But with regard to those searches, his brother has possession of the car as per the search warrant. We don't know if he possibly had that vehicle at one point, if he's ever changed license plates on the vehicle, why specifically did he transfer the car to his brother? Or even most importantly, what was the date of the transfer to his brother? Is there a symbolism behind that? Great. And that's all timeline information. And Dr. Joni, Lisa makes an excellent point, and it's one that I think everybody on this panel has talked about. I firmly believe he's going to have journals and calendars and maps, and I think he's been very detailed in what he's done. What do you think? I tend to agree with you about that, Cheryl. Um, he's an architect, number one, which implies that he's pretty detail-oriented. He, the amount of research he did on some of the families and continuing to follow them uh, makes me feel like there's are certainly an obsessive part of him. Um, he's somebody who he keeps revisiting information. So I, I agree with you. I think there will be some written information that he has kept somewhere. And I think there's some things that he does almost wrote that he doesn't even realize he does. Like, Sergeant, you know, you know there are some cops with NYPD that could not work undercover. Everything about them screams they're a police officer, like straight out of central casting. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, absolutely. I was one of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to theorize yeah. that. And, and that's what I'm saying. That Like that one photograph with you when you're in your London fog, you look straight <laughs> up. Like if I was doing a movie and I needed somebody to play a New York City policeman, you're it, sir, all day. And I think with, you know, Rex, if he is the Long Island serial killer, there are things that he did from the aspect of his training and his career that he doesn't even realize he's doing that tells who he is. Well, sure. I mean, there's got there's there's usually something with these uh, individuals in regards to you know their background specifically. I mean, we know that uh, environment and experience, and of course, some biological things that would make these these guys tick. But you know, to to be able to 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 pull something like this off for so long too also gives you that in depth that you know he is he is kind of smart in in certain aspects. He knew he knew what he was doing. Yeah, he made mistakes, but that's where uh, you know law enforcement has to come in to, to identify those mistakes. You just from the law enforcement perspective, and I've said this before, you need to try to find out who the first victim was because that's where. He, he makes the, the, the most errors, right? So I think we're starting to see that with some of these cases now. You know, did he make mistakes because he got sloppy or did he make mistakes because he was in a rush? I mean, all of those things, you know, come to play. One of the things that I've been asking over and over again, they try to get a conversation on, is we really never talk about where these homicides happened, right? You know, where did they occur? I know some people think that they have, you know, something happened in the house. I still don't believe anything happened in the house. Too many nosy neighbors there in Massapequa Park. You're talking to, you're talking to a kid who grew up in, uh, on Long Island, you know. It's, 
they're very close. The houses are really close. You can see it, you know, when you're watching the videos on there too. Everybody knows everybody else's business. The other thing is, did it happen in a hotel? You know, people say, well, hotels. Yeah, no, it didn't happen. Too much surveillance, right? Too much videos. You got to check in in order to get a room. You have to show your face, all that stuff. I doubt anything happened. And this guy's huge. I mean, he's not, he's not somebody who could hide in plain sight in, in regards to a you know a group of. He would stand out on under every circumstance. And how do you get a dead body in and out of a hotel room 20 times and nobody notices? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. With all, especially with all the surveillance. This is surveillance video even in the staircases or when you're trying to exit the doors or, you know, inside and outside. I, I find that not plausible at all. To me, I, I keep on going back to the truck, you know, where he's going out with the with the women. He, you know, we know that he's he got a couple of them to leave their cell phones at home the night that they disappeared. You know, maybe he picks them up in his truck or what have you. I mean, this is, of course, all speculation, but that's what we're doing here, right? We're just taking a look at it and seeing we could put pieces of together, just like, you know, normal investigations would happen. But, you know, I think that's important. And I think they were surprised that these trucks even exist because he has two avalanches. People think you know, a lot of people overskipped it. They took two avalanches. So that's that's a kind of neat aspect of this thing. But see, I agree with you, Joe. I think one was for killing and one was for driving. So when he stopped and they take that car, there's no blood in it. There's no hair in it. There's no, you know, killing tools and weapons in it. So, Mike, let me go to you. We know that he's associated with different properties, you know, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Arizona, Rhode Island, whatever. Do you think that he's got some little piece of land somewhere that he can pull that truck into some trees and do whatever he wants for as long as he wants and then has some burlap and some buckets and some tubs that he puts people in and body parts in and then transports them? It wouldn't shock me. I mean, th this guy, from from what we do know, he's alleged to have done and the things he, you know, the, the clues that have been revealed it wouldn't surprise me and and the areas he probably frequented to to find these victims they're probably not going to be where a lot of people are willing to come forward so he can probably have a little more privacy and and the fact that those people aren't going to be out there coming coming forward to work with police on a regular basis so i think right from the time he would pick them up to to wherever he was disposing of them or actually murdering them um he probably you know, hoped and sought out as much privacy as he could, because as Joe said, there's no way um, he stands out. He's he, he's just wherever he's at. If he's with a group of people, you're going to see him out of everyone else. The places he could go are, are probably limited, but we know this guy's a hunter, so I, I'm willing to bet he knows some stretches of woods, some waterways where where there's not going to be people, and that's a place where he could maybe take these some, some of these victims or dispose of them and without prying eyes looking at them. We're talking about waterways, we're talking about land, and we're talking about privacy. Through my, I guess, rabbit hole and need to know regarding this investigation, I actually did some record searches down in South Carolina. And apparently his chunk of land that he purchased down there, number one, has a sign on the fence, which are, which is uh, surrounding the entire property that says no warrant, no entry. So that right there, I mean, I know for me, I wouldn't even, if I, I had a house at one point, I, didn't, I had a fence. Why would I put that on there? Why would I raise suspicion of my neighbors? Why would I possibly want to go ahead and even just put that out there? If I wasn't going to be a law-abiding citizen, 
why go ahead and have um, suspicion raised upon you? And the other side of it is, if I didn't do anything wrong, why would I even put that there to begin with? So that right there is kind of interesting. Uh, the second interesting about the property is that through land records, I was able to go ahead and access the actual tax property. And they what they do is they do an aerial ship photo uh, in addition to showing the grid lines of where the property lines extend to. And he actually purchased the property, which sits on two bodies of water. And he's down here in South Carolina. It's literally the middle of nowhere. If you were to zoom out um, on the property address and take a look at the land around it for at least 250 miles, there's not a single body of water. But this man conveniently purchases the property and his property line contains access to two bodies of water. And if they're, I mean, they're small lakes. They look like they could possibly be man. Uh, they're obviously man-made for the development, but um, he's got access in the back of the house as well as the front of the house. And just to piggyback on on something Lisa just said, she's doing searches for properties that he has owned or had access to. But what about properties, family members of his? What about properties that he had when he was younger or places that he knew of um, that aren't even in his name? There could be a plethora of, of different places he's familiar with that aren't necessarily tied to him. And Mike, it's funny you said that because I even thought he has an adult son. Is he using his name and social security number to buy property? Or even to rent. Long Island procedure is that you just go ahead. Or, I mean, probably most places is that as long as you have sometimes a parent, if you have to co-sign on a place. I know I had to do it when I first moved out of my parents' house. I had to bring my parents as a co-signer on the lease just so they knew that I was going to be paying money every month. And I just showed a photo ID. And considering the fact that the son is special needs... That could be a justification for him being on a piece of property just as a rental and then paying cash every month. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Carrie, let me ask you something. When some of these theories come up and people are talking and now we're just saying something about the son that may or may not even be accurate. But again, how hurtful is that to his mama, his sister? You just have to deviate like and make sure you're clarifying that he could like it's not the son doing this um, that, you know, like allegedly like Rex could be using um, his kids names or social security numbers. I mean, there's several components here. Like you just have to remember in these conversations, like it's all my father's fault. It's, it's all allegedly Rex's fault. Like all of this devastation, death, disruption to the community, PTSD, like what everybody's enduring law enforcement task force away from their families. Like in the case of my father, there were detectives that devoted like decades, right? They were looking for my dad for three decades there were detectives that passed away and never saw my dad getting caught. And there were these stacks of files that were being handed down a decade over decade, like to these young guns that were coming up through the ranks. And the reality is like my father's first case was in 74. So we're getting close to 50 years here. I have detectives that I call my detectives, right? They were on the task force. They helped catch my dad. They're retiring now. So my detectives, they're retiring. And now literally BTK's daughter has been handed to some new guy. And when I say a new guy, I mean, he's been on the task. He's been on the police force like 20 some years. He's probably my age, right? So he's, he, he helped like, he was part of like some gang task force and he, he got to sort of help arrest my dad. But if you talk to the Wichita guys, they all help. They're literally now like, okay, who do we hand his daughter to, right? As somebody retires, like, who do we hand these files to? But it all it all goes back. It's all my dad's fault and it's all Rex's fault. But like, like Dr. Joni can help me here. But the thing is, when you guys are talking about like, wh- where we don't know where Rex took his victims. Like, I'm assuming he did pick them up at a motel and then he transported them in the truck alive somewhere, or maybe he, he bound them somewhere, but I don't know if he could have done that at the motel. Somehow he got them away from wherever he was meeting him, or he, he has some location where he met them. I mean, that's where you got to look in the records. The, the, the thing is, I just don't think he would have spent the time he did with them in the truck. That doesn't make sense to me. Like you would have to park that truck somewhere covered. Now, of course, you could be transporting bodies in there or you could have dismembered people and then transported them. Um, the evidence will tell us that that was happening in the truck. But if you're spending time with them and bounding them and wrapping them and the care, that's that's where I get all messed up and confused is because it's like he was very careful with Go Go 4 and it just doesn't match the other ones, but it doesn't mean it's not him because, you know, they evolve and they change. I just, it feels to me like we're missing some sort of key component. Like my father broke into homes and then used those victims' houses. 
as coverage. And he, he ran into all sorts of scenarios he wasn't expecting and he had to adapt. Um, Rex really eliminated a lot of the trouble. My dad would use the word trouble that my dad ran into because he's literally controlling this like petite little five foot woman, you know, but we don't, I don't know. Did he take him back home? Did he take him in the vault? I, I mean, evidence will tell us, right? Or property records or investigations. It's just, it feels like this missing component to me right now. And I don't, I don't know what it is. I, mean, I, I feel the same way, Carrie, that there's something missing. And I, I don't know. I do feel like he is going to take them somewhere that's enclosed. I, I have a hard time also seeing him doing all of these things in a truck outdoors. I Also, I have no problem seeing him transporting bodies um, in a truck as well. Um, it, it, to me, given his reputation in the neighborhood as somebody who was um, kept to himself, um, some people saw him as scary, or odd. Um, the family was very aloof. To me, it's not out of the realm of possibility that he could find a way at night to to bring somebody to his house with his family being gone and, and spend a lot of time in that vault with them and then transport them out. But it'll be interesting to see. I feel like, you know, we don't know, obviously we're, I'm completely speculating, but I do think he is taking them somewhere where he feels comfortable. Um, and he can take as much time as he wants to with them. And maybe the hunting, maybe somebody has a hunting cabin that he borrows or whatever. That's another possibility, but it's hard for me to see him doing something where he's not completely comfortable physically as well as psychologically. All right. Anybody else want to throw out anything? I was just sort of uh, I think we forget that when obviously we we talked about his family being victims um, of a different kind. Obviously, they they weren't murder victims. He victimized them in another way. But just the police obviously have to go into that house and tear that house apart looking for evidence. But to see those pictures of what they were left with, because now they've got to deal with this aftermath and then if they're going to live in this house, how do you live in that house? I mean, beside what may have happened there and, and the things they're probably worried about, now it's it's the bathtub's ripped out of the thing. I was, you know, it, it reminded me of what these homes look like sometimes when the police go through them looking for evidence. And, you know, I, I wondered what Carrie's thoughts are, are on something like that. As a citizen and as a crime victim, I don't honestly know, are there laws that protect victim like crime victim families of the criminals and then in a crime scene um like you take idaho for like is there any sort of law or protections like who pays for that cleanup is there a cleanup or do the police just release it i mean you guys can address that in a second but like from my viewpoint my situation was different because my dad confessed the first night they basically held against my dad he was holding out for them for the last first like six hours and then interrogation um he was playing games and he was he was being like just a real big pill like and everybody knew they had him and and they basically were just getting kind of fed up with him and they said look they're like we know we know you're btk and we we know you have evidence in your house you know they knew he had sent in a driver's license from his 86 murder and they knew they figured he had other driver's license and there were jewelry missing and so they're like we know you have stuff where like where is that stash like your most important evidence and they said if you don't give it to us we're gonna we're gonna toss your your house and really harm paula my mom and the kids we're gonna make things worse on them by tossing that house 
So from what I understand, they literally used that as a pressure point to get my dad to give up the goods, which was evidence that was buried under a floorboard in our hallway. Now, they would have had to toss that house pretty darn hard to find that because it was under a really heavy cabinet, right? So between that and having the evidence they had of my dad and then my dad just finally saying, yeah, you got me on DTK. And then my dad gave him a 30-hour confession, which we're not seeing here with Rex that we know of. So the situation's different because my dad was cooperative. He walked them through everything. He told them, like, my dad has an insane memory even nowadays. He can, t like, we were all saying we don't know what we had for breakfast. My dad can give you an alibi for some weekend in October in 1990. Now, it might not be true. It might have 10 lies around it. But he literally can still remember things down to, like, the name of a creek where he put a body in, like, 1991. Like, he can draw you the bridge. like. That's the insane level that my father still operates at, and he's elderly. So it's just a different situation. So like Mike was asking about the house, it's hard for me to see like all of that evidence piled out. But Mac, you made a good point. Like they got to go in there. We don't know if crimes were committed there. Like you have, like as a crime scene tech, you have to go in and you have to look at everything I mean, I understand from the evidence point what they got to do. I would have just liked to seen some team go in there and kind of fix it for them. And literally, I don't understand, like, this is where, like, the trauma comes in, right? You're so traumatized and you're like, well, I'm just going to go back and live in my house. Well, this is where the disconnect is. And somebody needs to come in like Dr. Joni and work with these people, like a like psychology and trauma therapy and victims advocates and come in and go like, Hey guys, you're living in a crime scene. Can we can we get you like a safe, quiet new place to live and be like so you can heal? Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. 
Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Nothing about murder is clean. Everything is messy. Everything is horrible. Everything is gross. So to me, when you look at Peaches, I believe that her baby, Dr. Joni said the other day, sadly, was collateral damage. When you look at what happened to that house, sorry, that's collateral damage. But again, Rex did that. He did that to his family. And as a crime scene person, looking at that house almost like they're hoarders, I have no idea what any of that stuff is and how it fits. So I'm going to try to take all of it. And then I believe he does have things hidden there. I think he's got maps and journals and codes and little notations on bar napkins, possibly, and some type of way that he's kept a log of things. I want every bit of it. I'm going to make holes in the wall. I'm going to pull up the flooring. I'm going to move anything that is obviously too heavy because I don't trust what's behind it or what's underneath it or, frankly, what's inside it. So I've got to know. And again, it is horrible and it is sad, but I'm going to tell you something. If you were to ask those families, had you rather have your house tore up and get your child back? Well, there you go. I use the term ripple effect because it's when these guys do this kind of thing, they destroy everybody's lives, their families, their victims, their victims' families, the officers that they've got to put all the stress on uh, and and what they've got to see. So nothing good comes from this. This is these these people destroying countless lives in in so many ways. And the ripple effect is massive. And it continues. Like there's just another tidal wave and then another tidal wave the more you find out stuff. You're absolutely right. Sergeant, any final thought? Yeah, generally the way these things work um... – the, you know, the family can have recourse, and if you if you listen to the press conference when they asked the district attorney about the house, and he said that she can file any kind of um, you know thing she wants to, which I think was kind of foretelling because generally the way these things work is that when they do the search warrant, if the police go in and they don't find evidence, they generally the the city or the state or the county there is responsible for uh, fixing things and repairing it. But if they find evidence of a crime. They kind of walk away from it and say, this is all on you now. So I thought that was kind of uh, foretelling that the district attorney said, well, she can try any way she wants. Yep. Agreed. I guess one thing I wanted to just say as we kind of wrap things up is just this idea of the ripple effect and and also just how it affects so many different people differently, depending upon the role and their relationship with the individuals. and. And I think it is important. I know, Joe, you were talking about some of the silent suffering that police officers endure for years and the things that they see and Carrie talking about some of the things that you've gone through. I think, you know, there are resources um, and there need to be more resources. And I think particularly resources in terms of talking to people who have been through the same thing that you have, 
I think when you're talking about a trauma like this, um, whether you lost somebody to homicide or you spent years viewing homicides or you grew up with somebody who was committing homicides, I think, I don't know if there's any substitute for finding other people who can really understand. And there are not that many people who can understand. And professional counseling is fantastic and therapy is fantastic as well. Obviously, I promote that as a psychologist. But I, I do think that peer piece of it is really, really important. I, I've done so much trauma therapy and I'm back in it. And yeah, it, it like it has, it, it has helped. It's one of the components that has helped save my life. You know, faith has helped save my life, my own strength that my dad taught me or I was born with and he honed and literally he built me partly to be strong, I think, because he knew what was coming. I really think my dad built me partly built into me to stand up to him, which I did on multiple occasions. Uh, it's interesting when you think about it that way. But all of these components, my faith and, you know, my children, all this stuff keeps me alive. But really what's brought me back to life is really like the development of my my zone seven. And really just in the last half year, really, honestly, since Koberger was arrested, like all of these people have come into my life. And like now you guys are all like becoming colleagues or like family. Like I really don't have much family anymore. And so for me you know, Mac and I were talking like all of this hell is happening all over here and it's God awful, but we all like find each other in it and we, we get closer, you know, like we're all in it together as we're like working the problem. That's what I call it. Like we're all over here working this problem together and we build, we build like our family as we're like educating and learning. I'm, li I'm literally sitting here learning from you all tonight, but like I'm, I'm getting a family back. So that's, that's like that key component, like Dr. Joni was talking about, about having each other. And there aren't that many people that can deal on the level that I need people to deal. And so like, when I find like my, my true crime nutters, I'm pretty happy because it's like, I found my, I found my people. Well, getting your family back, I kind of, that kind of got to me. <laughs> all right. I like it. I like that all day. I do thank you all. And I, you know, I do believe, you know, what coach used to say, you know, one school, one team. Well, I feel like we're one community and one family. I mean, I really do. So I just appreciate y'all desperately. So now I'm going to wrap up so y'all can get to the bar. I mean, to your family. Um, <laughs> or the, to the bar and then the family. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's how as we deal with it. The, as long as you're not taking the family to the bar. Well, you, you know, <laughs> don't question my parenting. It works for us. Man, I'm in know. Manhattan right now. Manhattan, New York. I got every option imaginable. Of bars. And you need to go take advantage of about nine of them and enjoy yourself. I'm going to end zone seven the way that I always do with a quote. We will support this task force with every tool it needs to hopefully bring this investigation and these murders to a successful conclusion. Michael J. Driscoll, Assistant Director of the FBI of New York. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 